there. I'm your friend Bev, host of Stop Psychoanalyzing Me, a podcast about mental health. I interview experts and ask questions about mental disorders that all of us might be curious about. Come join me. Today's episode is Dr. Zindel Siegel, who is a distinguished professor of psychology and mood disorders at the University of Toronto Scarborough. He is a co-developer of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and a co-founder of MindfulNoggin.com, offering online mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to the public. As an author of over 10 books and 180 scientific publications, including The Mindful Way Through Depression, A Patient Guide for Achieving Mood Balance in Everyday Life, Dr. Siegel continues to advocate for the relevance of mindfulness-based clinical care in psychiatry and mental health. Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hey Bev, it's a pleasure. Today, we're going to be talking about depression, and I know that you have spent a great deal of your life studying and working with folks with depression, and I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your career. Sure. I uh, went to um, McGill for my undergrad. I went to Queen's University for my graduate work, and then I came to Toronto to work at the Clark Institute of Psychiatry, which was uh, what CAMH was called before they changed the name. And in those times, it was really quite a wonderful place to work because the, the Clark Institute had a dedicated cognitive behavior therapy unit for the treatment of depression and anxiety disorders. Hard to believe, but in those days, cognitive therapy was actually a very new type of therapy. It was a depression-specific treatment rather than a generic therapy that was intended to be all things to all people. This was optimized for dealing with features of depression with short term. And the other thing about it, it was manualized. So there was actually a, a treatment manual that we were working from. And in those days, so this would have been 1986, treatment manuals were still relatively new. And there was some controversy around them. And then I worked there for about 28 years and then moved to the University of Toronto at Scarborough to become involved with the uh, graduate program in psychological uh, clinical science and have been there ever since. Wow. So quite an illustrious career. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. For folks who don't really know too much about depression, I just wanted to open up with some very general basic questions. So for example, what exactly is the difference between depression and sadness? You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question. I think a lot of people have it on their minds. And, and one way of trying to understand it is that when we, when we talk about the general group of disorders in which depression is one of them, uh, we talk about mood disorders. So the disorders of mood where problems with mood are predominant, moods are something that we all have. We all have different moods. We have low moods. We have you know, moods where we feel really good. But there's something particular about the way mood gets dysregulated and qualifies for a clinical diagnosis. So if we look at sadness, for example, we can all have periods where we're feeling sad and we can all have periods where maybe we're feeling sad and a little bit shut down. But the difference is that there are two or three additional features that have to be present for a clinical disorder. So okay. everyday common sadness is something that we'll all go through. But in depression, there's not just sadness, 
There's also problems with sleep. There's also problems with appetite. There's also problems with concentration. There's also possibly thoughts about self-harm. Mm-hmm. There's also problems with fatigue and mm-hmm. energy. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's problems with uh, irritability, restlessness. And all of these things coming together as a cluster form what's called a syndrome, where sadness and these other features show up at the same time. But even that's not enough. Because, you know, in the context of, of graduate school, there may be times when you're staying up late at night for two or three nights in a row even to get a paper ready or, or, or to deal with comprehensive exams or some other demand, getting a grant in. And so if you've been up for a couple of nights or had very poor sleep, um, you know, you might start to feel agitated, have trouble concentrating. You know, maybe you've like eaten a lot or you haven't actually you know, totally forgotten to eat. So some of those features may resemble a person with similar features who's depressed. So the two additional criteria are not that those features are present, but that they have to persist for at least two weeks, sometimes up to okay. a month. Okay, okay. And that they have to really be impairing. So they're not going away. They're getting in the way of you functioning socially or in the workplace. And then all of these things have to come together in order to qualify for a diagnosis. And I think that that's important because, you know, in everyone's life, we have setbacks, we have ups and downs. And so we don't want to diagnose people who are just going through the normal vicissitudes of life. But if there is something that shows up syndromally, has a persistence to it, has a strong impairment dimension to it, then I think it's time to consider something that's crossed the threshold. Could you have many of these features of depression that you're talking about, but perhaps not always feel sad? Maybe most of the time you do feel sadness, but maybe some of the time you don't. Would you still meet criteria for depression or what would that be? That's a great question. In fact, a lot of the times the diagnosis is made in the absence of sadness, but in the presence of irritability. And irritability is not something we usually associate with feeling sad, but irritability can sometimes be a proxy for the dysregulated mood that's required for a diagnosis. Okay. And sometimes I hear folks talking about their high functioning depression. Do you know what that might mean? Or is that sort of a colloquial term that folks sort of throw around? There are a couple of different ways of understanding that. Uh, I'll just throw out two terms. And I think these are a reflection that sometimes depression in a very clean way comes into your life and then it leaves. So you have an episode, it gets treated, you're, you're back to being the person you used to be. Not everyone is that fortunate. Sometimes people who get treated for depression have what's called residual depressive symptoms. So maybe they're 50 or 60% of the way better, but they continue to have certain symptoms that haven't really gone away. So they're kind of walking around with some depressive symptoms, but still functioning. And 60% of the way better is substantial. Sometimes it's a matter of residual depressive symptoms, and then people um, need additional care, uh, additional intervention to help get down to uh, you know less than that. And then the other thing is there, there is a subtype of what used to be called dysthymia, but now I think is called persistent depressive disorder, which is like having a depression that is like a low-grade cold. Mm-hmm. Some symptoms are present, but not fully present for an episode of the like the major depressive episode diagnosis. And so like having a low-grade cold where you're 
not in bed, you know, wrapped up in blankets, you know, watching, uh, you know, TV for 18 hours, but you're at work, you're working, you're interacting. But there are some low grade symptoms where you're still viewing the world through a depressive lens. Things aren't able to reach into your reward system. You're not feeling a lot of pleasure or mastery. You're kind of like going through the motions. And that persistent depressive disorder is, is a lower level version of depression. Sometimes it's actually harder to treat. Part of that is, I think, because it can become embedded in a, um, a lifestyle that, that people don't even recognize that there's something else going on. They may blame themselves or see themselves as the problem rather than seeing that they have persistent, low-grade depressive disorder that needs therapeutic attention. And I've almost heard it described almost like a personality because someone might live with this sort of low-grade depression for such a long time. And you're right, it becomes embedded in their lives. Yeah, it's important to, I think when we talk about personality, make sure that we do that in a way that doesn't blame people right? or suggest that, well, if you changed your personality, your depression would, would go away in some ways. It may be more respectful to see this as an adaptation to persistent, pervasive, low-grade symptoms. And, and sometimes symptoms aren't seen as symptoms. Sometimes symptoms are seen as something that's wrong with the self. Mm-hmm. I mean, people with body dysmorphic disorder. And what is that oh, for folks who don't know? <laughs> right. so there are people who look in the mirror and, and, and are fixated on parts of their bodies that they think need to change, are distorted, are exaggerated, are irregular, and they mm-hmm. get preoccupied with that. And so for them, they look in the mirror and they don't say to themselves, Oh, you know, this is a symptom of a, a, a disorder called body dysmorphic disorder, where um, I'm viewing my body in ways that can sometimes be exaggerated and harmful. They see it as a problem of self, where if only I could make this smaller, if only I can make this feature go away, if only I can make this feature larger, I will solve my problem. And so they're trying to solve a problem of self that they believe is important, whereas in fact, they're really dealing with a disorder that probably needs to have a different kind of avenue of care. And so bringing that back to, to the persistent depressive disorder, people that, that, that live with some of these symptoms may fold a certain adaptation around it where it gets taken up by behaviors, by certain personality traits, by certain ways of acting with others to allow them to, to adapt to what they feel is not changeable. What is the biggest misconception that people have about depression? I think one of the big misconceptions is that people can just snap out of it if they wanted to. So here what you have is a continuation of the stigmatization of people with mental health challenges. Yes. Because they're largely invisible. They're largely unseen. And so you have someone who's you know, strong and ably bodied at work, just unable to work, unable to perform. And you know, one of the things that's a cardinal symptom in depression or difficulties with concentration and decision-making because the executive control networks of the brain are often slightly impaired. And you're looking at this person and like, you know, why can't you get the work done? Why can't you finish up those calculations on a spreadsheet? And if they were there with a cast on their wrists, you wouldn't expect them to use the mouse or to be able to use their computer in the same way. But because these are invisible, people feel like, you know, they're slacking or there's something wrong with them or they're lazy or smoking too much weed or, you know, all kinds of excuses other than seeing that this isn't something people can just snap out of. They need to recognize that they're up against something larger and uh, and get some care. 
Okay. I think that's such an important message. So thank you for sharing that. (laughs) How does depression develop? I've heard of folks saying, oh, I have depression. It runs in my family. So is it primarily genetic or is it primarily due to life stressors like losing a job? What do you think contributes to the development? You know, I think the honest answer is we don't know definitively. It's not one thing or another. I think that the best evidence suggests that a combination of genetic factors and other biological variables lead to a diathesis, which is a a predisposition for depression. And that stress can trigger that diathesis in people. So people that are very, very vulnerable for their initial episodes of depression can be triggered by a stressful event that may not be triggering depression in people who are less vulnerable. So it's a combination. And so that people that have this diathesis, that's probably the thing that seems to be genetically connected because the heritability rates in depression are nowhere near as high as schizophrenia. For example, well, heritability rates for unipolar depression are not as high as schizophrenia. Heritability rates for bipolar disorder, which used to be called manic depression, are actually quite high and approach those for schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is the mental disorder that has the highest rate of heritability or genetic transmission. So with unipolar depression, it's not just if you you have it in your family tree, then you're going to get it. It's just that you get this vulnerability, and then that vulnerability can be triggered by life events. And depending on how vulnerable you are, it may take a very severe life event or a number of life events, or it may just take one thing, and your response to it might resemble an oppressive episode. And just to be clear for folks who don't know, unipolar depression, how would you define that? So unipolar depression is what we typically think of as depression. People are, you know, moving along nicely in their lives. And when they become depressed, they become very down, very sad, or very irritable. They stay in bed. They can't get out of bed. Uh, They may overeat or they may um, stop eating and lose weight. They may become very slow and sluggish. That more typical idea of people that are very depressed, very shut down, uninterested in interacting, nothing feels good. They may have thoughts of self-harm. Okay. And, And bipolar depression is different. That's what most people think of as manic depression, where you might have people who alternate between periods of feeling very, very high mind racing, thinking of themselves in really, you know, grandiose terms, and then cycling from that down into a depression. Dr. Zindel Siegel is co-creator of MindfulNoggin.com. Mindful Noggin's evidence-based digital courses will teach you how mindfulness can help you achieve greater emotional balance and resilience in everyday life. To learn more, go to www.mindfulnoggin.com. And I'm wondering, um, you know, perhaps also with the COVID-19 pandemic, and I've heard this sort of anecdote thrown around, this idea that rates of depression are actually increasing. And I was wondering if that's true. Do you know that? I think it's true from survey data that rates of anxiety and worry and preoccupation with health are certainly increasing. And this is this is worldwide survey data. And so I think it's likely that if you have people who maybe, you know, 
the question is then, you know, is that leading to new cases, people who've never been depressed getting depressed, or is it impacting people that have a history of prior episodes of depression? Is it pushing them more uh, forcefully into a new episode of depression? I don't think we know that, but I think that these kinds of negative affects are risk factors for new onsets. There's been a recent documentary out that a lot of people have been talking about on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And they talk a little bit about the link between social media and depression. And I was wondering if you could speak to that at all. You know, that's a really interesting question. There is a uh, a view around depression which suggests that increasingly as a society, as a society, we've lost our ability to connect with other people. That if we could have more of that, there may be lower rates of depression, lower rates of, uh, you know, mood disorders in in general. And it sort of depends, I guess, in terms of social media, whether you see that as an instrument for enhancing connection, or whether you see it as a diluted form of connection. Because you could say that it enhances connection with people that you never would have had a connection with otherwise. Right. Facebook friends, people post, people connect, Twitter, you've got networks, you have a chance, you know, TikTok, you're looking at people you never would have seen. So you're sharing the lives of of tons of people that you never would have had any connection to. And maybe some of those are, you know, a bit of a deeper connection. So that's one argument, I guess, in favor of the social media enhancing social connection. But then the other part of it is that it's a very razor thin form of connection, which may not feed the kind of connection that we want or actually need in order to prevent depression or to prevent the sense of feeling isolated and alone that can be very um, helpful in in dealing with you know challenges of, of developing a mood disorder or starting to see things as 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 hopeless or um, yourself as worthless or the future you know helpless to do anything about it I think you don't want to have one be a substitute for the other I don't think social media can substitute for you know, connections to people that are not mediated through social platforms, virtual digital platforms. I think you need both. Okay. That's really interesting. And and I really like that message too, around how social media might be a razor thin level of connection. Mm. This has been a great talk. We've talked a lot about depression. We've talked a bit about the incidence of depression. And now I'd love to know a little bit about treatment. And so if someone is depressed what can they do about it? What are the best treatments for depression? Well, I think even before that answer, it's important to recognize that treatment makes a difference, period. Mm-hmm. And that many people don't even access treatment or care. Right. So getting treatment makes a difference. And a lot of these difficulties are treatable, which is another important message. Mm-hmm. And then when it gets into what types of treatments uh, are effective, there are a number of treatments, which is, I think, good news. The standard of care right now is an antidepressant where you would you know, see your GP or psychiatrist would prescribe one of the um, antidepressants that are considered to be first-line antidepressants, in other words, likely to work on the general population. We're not at a point now where you know we have sort of pharmacokinetic prof- pharmacokinetic profiles of antidepressants that uh, can suggest you know this works better in men or this works better in women or this works better in older and this works a little bit of that but but we're not really there. I so, see. So, you know, frontline, first line treatments, or 
there are psychotherapies like cognitive therapy that have really strong evidence bases for them because they've been um, developed to address features of depression and teach people skills for helping them um, examine thinking styles, engage in behavioral routines that are antidepressive, and that those skills can stay with people when they're no longer in therapy so that they can continue to be their own therapists. And when you say skills that are antidepressant, do you mean going for a walk or watching TV? What does that look like? Well, one of the things that those uh, strategies are intended to combat is the idea in depression that people feel nothing is really worth doing, nothing's going to change, nothing will help. You know, how can going to see a movie help me when my problems are massive? And so what happens is that people get exposed to very little of a reward matrix in their lives. And so some of these strategies are essentially saying, look, this is what your mind is telling you, but how about just going out and acting first, doing things, and then letting the mind you know, give its judgment afterwards? Instead of waiting until your mind says, yeah, you know what? Now's a good time to go see a movie. So you're acting opposite to the depression, hopefully then changing how you feel. Or at least exploring whether behaviors that are opposite action or, you know, another term is behavioral activation or another term is exposure allows you to discover and explore the way that these thoughts about hopelessness, helplessness, are actually helping you or not. And very often after performing these behaviors, you can see that the mind actually is very poor at forecasting the ways in which these behaviors impact on you. Sounds like a lot of what cognitive therapy is all about is challenging those really negative thoughts that folks have while they're depressed. Is that right? I think that's a big part of it. You know, challenging can sound a bit harsh because it's ch challenging can be like, you know, you're thinking wrong or you don't know what you're thinking about or but it's actually, it's not challenging in the sense of, you know, one lawyer debating another lawyer. It's using tools that are related to discovery, curiosity, and kindness to examine long-held assumptions and say, you know, how can we come at this in a way that allows that to be possibly true? But what new information can you bring if you start to discover what it's like to actually do this? participate in this way, stop and, you know, focus on, you know, things. And so then that engages in a different relationship to those thoughts. And sometimes those thoughts don't go away. Hmm. People who have trauma histories have views of themselves or things that have happened to them that are not going to be eliminated, but they do have the possibility of developing a different relationship to what hmm. that says about them or, or what they carry in their bodies. So I can imagine someone might have a thought that they're worthless or they'll never feel better. And then they might engage in some of these behaviors and maybe the thought that they're worthless or they'll never get better still comes to mind every so often, but at least through doing these exercises or using skills, they've, like you said, changed their relationship to those thoughts. They're able to maybe more readily recognize that it's sort of the noisiness of the mind and mm -hmm. kind of old ways of thinking that are coming up for them. And actually there are things they've done that do make them feel worthwhile or do make them feel a little bit better at times. And, and also the possibility of just putting that thought next to another thought 
which is, you know, when I've gone for a walk, I felt better. Mm. And so you have the thought you're worthless. Nothing's going to make a difference. Why bother going for a walk? Mm. Maybe that can sit next to a thought of, you know, the last three times I've gone for a walk, I felt better, you know, for a little stretch. And then those two thoughts are there and you're making space for both of them. You're holding both of them. That's a different relationship to just having the one thought, following the one thought because it's the absolute truth and um, being shut down by the implications of that thought. And it reminds me of later this season, we have someone on the podcast talking about using psychedelics to treat folks with depression, in particular, folks who uh, are thinking about suicide. And I was wondering if you know anything about that movement or if you have any thoughts on using psychedelics. It's funny, you know, it's like the first thought is like, this is crazy shit. And then you know what? And then you know what? I'm thinking when I first got started, and was talking to psychiatrists about using mindfulness meditation to help people recover from depression. I think that was crazy shit back then. <laughs> and it was. I mean, right. no one was having those conversations and they were, you know, they were like almost career suicide conversations to have. Wow. Wow. So different but, from now. Yeah. But why is it different? Because we built up a massive evidence base and we've done randomized control trials and we've done placebo control trials and we have virtual platforms that can help people access this. That's why it's no longer controversial to talk about that. So if psychedelics follow that same template in you know 20 years, 15 years from now, it won't be controversial. Dr. Siegel, what do I do if I think someone I know is depressed and they're not getting any treatment? How do I help that person? That's a great question. I think a lot of people probably face a situation just like that. If, if what you're up against is someone who is resistant to treatment, that's different from someone who may not see themselves as depressed. So they may feel like they just need to solve one or two problems that are in front of them or just deal with something themselves. And, you know, their depression or their symptoms will uh, will remit. That's different than someone who just doesn't recognize that depression is something that can be a, a clinical problem and that needs treatment. So the first thing I would say is make a strong case for getting treatment and that the burden that the person is dealing with um, is not something that they have to deal with on their own. Lastly, before we wrap up here, I'm wondering... Yeah. Are there any resources you'd recommend for people who'd like to learn more about depression? I think that there are a number of, of, of websites, the Canadian Mental Health Association, the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and, you know, some, uh, you know, CAMH have general informational websites on depression. But I think that there are also a lot of community-facing, public-facing websites that are coming from a sort of public health perspective um, that people can access that just talk about depression that, you know, you have to make sure that they don't have an agenda behind them. Like sometimes websites are, are in favor of one type of treatment or another. But if you go onto the, you know, the Mayo Clinic, for example, website, they'll talk to you about depression. You go onto the National Institute of Mental Health website, just type depression. You'll get a, a good basic um, description of the features and the prognosis and the care options that are available. I'd like to give you the opportunity to give some sort of take-home message uh, to our listeners. Do you have anything that you'd really like to make sure folks get out of our episode today? You know, I've read a lot of qualitative studies 
of people who are depressed and uh, get treatment and come out of it. And two of the things that they continually say, and these are studies in Canada, these are studies in the UK and elsewhere, the two take home messages that they resonate with at the end of their ordeal is depression is not me hmm. and thoughts are not facts. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're very welcome. Beth. And that was today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was hosted by Bev Catherine and produced by Yuri Gladio. Podcasting isn't free. Consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. You'll get early access to episodes and other exclusive content. You can find us on patreon.com slash stop psychoanalyzing me. Until next time. <laughs>